Hello everyone and welcome to Raw Talk Live COVID Decoded series. This year, we're making the most of the new normal and bringing you a virtual discussion series all about the COVID-19 pandemic. Over eight weeks this summer, we live streamed our discussions with experts on COVID-19 and its impacts on science and society. For this COVID Decoded discussion, I sat down with Dr. Shamista Mishra, an infectious disease physician, mathematical modeler, and also my supervisor, and Linwei Wang, senior data scientist and epidemiologist, both at St. Michael's Hospital. We talked about the basics of mathematical modeling, COVID-19 modeling in Canada, and how data from these models can inform our continued public health response. Before we jump into the discussion, we'd like to acknowledge the land on which the University of Toronto and our podcast operates. For thousands of years, it has been the traditional land of the Huron-Wendat, the Seneca, and most recently, the Mississaugas of the Credit River. Today, this meeting place is still home to many Indigenous peoples from across Turtle Island, and we're grateful to have the opportunity to work on this land. Okay, let's get into it. So, as an epidemiologist and as a mathematical modeler, how do you both arrive at uh, your current current positions? Uh, maybe Lin Wei, you can start us off. Sure. Um, hi, everyone. I'm Lin Wei. Uh, I studied public health and uh, epidemiology in the University of Alberta. So I was receiving training in both epidemiological and uh, biostatistical methods. I studied really interested in working as an analyst on longitudinal uh, type of data in the field of childhood cancer, both as my uh, master's thesis as well as some of the research projects I involved in. So after graduation, uh, my passion was to become a research analyst to support various types of epi data. And uh, I landed a job as a biostatistician at the BC Center for Excellence in HIV AIDS in Vancouver. So uh, working as a biostatistician with epi background, I was fortunate enough to be involved in various of epidemiological studies and applying biostatistical methods to understand the health service research as well as the treatment outcomes of HIV AIDS. And uh, I was part of a health economics research unit and the team back then was uh, doing a study, uh, NIH-funded study, to evaluate the impact of different uh, HIV interventions in six U.S. cities using a HIV transmission model. That was the first how I got introduced to the transmission modeling. And I, I started off by involving evidence synthesis and uh, model parameterization for a deterministic compartmental HIV transmission model. And uh, gradually, I got to learn about different model structure and uh, started some hands-on model analysis. So when I moved from Vancouver to Toronto, Dr. Shamista Misha's mathematical lab becomes a natural and a greater choice for me. So I get to work with a group of brilliant scientists and analysts, modelers, epidemiologists on various projects. So in the pre-COVID era, I was working on research focusing on to understand the sexual missing patterns among men who have sex with men in Canada as well as applying HIV transmission model to evaluate the impact of sexual missing patterns such as serial sorting on the impact of uh, HIV intervention strategies such as PrEP. And uh, 
since the outbreak started in March, our team, including Shamista and myself, have been working on COVID-related projects, uh, including we're trying to use a deterministic uh, COVID transmission model to estimate the healthcare surge need uh, in hospitals in the greater Toronto area, as well as using the surveillance data of COVID, trying to do some epidemic appraisal of the COVID epidemic in the greater Toronto. Excellent. Thanks so much, uh, Lin Wei. And I know there were maybe some uh, some words we're familiar with there, but we'll circle back to make sure we uh, define some of those too, because uh, um, yeah, it's, I know it's really complicated and uh, that's where we're excited to help you share your expertise here. Thank you. Uh, so, Sharmista? Oh, um, so, the question of uh, how we went into mathematical yes. modeling, as, a, as an, in particular for myself, um, really coming from an infectious disease clinical background um, and having the opportunity and the privilege to work and support outbreak um, analyses and, and outbreak investigations. Um, the thinking that is involved with trying to understand the logic of how um, outbreaks evolve, how the mechanisms of transmission at a population level is what really drew me to working on infectious disease modeling, um, going from sort of the clinical, um, the patient, uh, and sort of what we see to understanding how that evolves um, at a population level. So really for me, it was, uh, you know, the, the light bulb that hit when I think I finally kind of really understood what herd immunity um, was, as well as heterogeneity and variability in risk and what that means for herd immunity is kind of what drew me to, to transmission modeling. So can you walk us through, maybe Lin Wei, you can tell us a little bit about the importance of epidemiology as a science in the context of a pandemic? Sure. I think it's a very broad question because as EPI is, it involves different areas of research and different researchers been working on their own different fields. So. A rough, very chronological, or actually very rough, is let's think about even before the start of the COVID pandemic, each country and the region have the public health surveillance system in place. So it speaks to the outbreak detection of, in terms of the epi, epi's role in the pandemic. And uh, since the outbreak started, there is field epidemiologists who actually went into the community, talked to the people who were diagnosed, trying to understand the, some common between the cases. So that's the start of the outbreak investigation. And uh, even during now, all the contact tracing, trying to find the epi links between different cases, really informed our understanding of the roots of transmission. And uh, moving forward with all the data collected uh, either by the surveillance system or by the interviewers who went into the field, quantitative epidemiologists have been all hands-on with the data. Um, and we're trying to understand the aspects such as what's the epidemiology of COVID, like for example, what's the uh, incubation period, serial interval, all the way to what's the full spectrum of disease severity of COVID, what percentage requires hospitalization, and what has outcomes such as case fatality, et cetera. And uh, moving even further with more data come in, and uh, it really speaks to actually, as an epidemiology, it's a study to uh, describe the distribution, also determinants of health state. So then we're trying to identify what's the risk factors which subgroups are at a higher risk and in terms of the uh, 
getting the COVID infection as well as the outcomes, the severity. And uh, so that's another perspective of how EPI has playing a consistent role. And uh, from another angle, it comes like intervention evaluation. And uh, epidemiologists been working with uh, methodologies in terms of like statistics, statisticians and as well as mathematical modelers trying to using different approaches to evaluate the intervention. And uh, um, one more thing is I think everyone is interested in will be, so what's, when is the vaccine come in? So this is a typical, the random controlled trial, which epidemiologists working with biologists and virologists trying to enroll and design the trials to evaluate the treatment effectiveness as well as potential vaccination. Mm. Yeah, so all the way from the detection to how do we control and uh, promote the health of people. It's kind of for all the, the root, it gets really to the root of the epi. That was incredible answer. Uh, yeah, so many more details than uh, I was anticipating. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, and then a similar question for you, Dr. Mishra. Um, what is the importance of mathematical modeling uh, in the context of a pandemic and obviously specifically COVID-19? So, I mean, there are when we think of mathematical modeling, um, and in this particular situation, we're talking about transmission modeling. So models that account for, or specifically look at the mechanism or the what we call sort of the population level causal pathway of, of transmission, um, the feedback loops from pre a prevalent infection to an incident infection and sort of that instantaneous or what leads to nonlinear uh, effects mm -hmm. essentially. Um, that element nicely combines with everything that Lin Wei was just talking about with respect to epidemiology. So throughout the sort of, you can think about a data life history or a life course of data or a life course of epidemiology in the context of an outbreak and think about where transmission modeling can complement either thinking about theory and fundamental insights. So estimates of the generation, uh, the generation time or serial interval, incorporating that into a transmission mechanistic model to forecast what might happen all the way to the intervention component aligned with these clinical trials to estimate um, the herd immunity component, the indirect benefits of an intervention, for example. So um, I think transmission modeling can kind of follow along that entire life course that, that Lin Wei was describing. So really working in essence, as much as possible, hand in hand with epidemiology, with um, the biostatisticians, with virologists, with immunologists throughout that course. And just so uh, the audience is all, they may not have the same epi background, uh, could you guys help me define maybe like a incubation period and a serial interval and also uh, incidence and prevalence? Maybe Linway, you could help us out there. Thanks. Because I think they'll come up. Yeah, a lot. this is a re really testing my textbook knowledge. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so um, incubation period that refers to when the infection uh, is, uh, when the virus is uh, trans transmissible. So it includes the period of subclinical when the, uh, the individual who are affected are not showing symptoms, however, are still transmissible. And uh, also the period where there is a symptom and there is infectionist. So that's the incubation period. And uh, based on the literature, I think uh, the commonly uh, understood number is the five days about the incubation period for the COVID-19. And the uh, serial interval speaks to uh, the when the two 
cases, let's say case A uh, infected case B, and the time between when case A is showing symptoms to the time when case B is showing symptoms. This is all uh, very important epidemiological features of COVID because all of them together actually contributes to the transmission dynamics of the COVID. Mm. I remember hearing actually um, that that incubation or that serial interval can actually be negative because in the case of COVID-19, there's so much uh, variability in the incubation period um, that someone might uh, transmit to someone else, but then that person goes on to develop symptoms before the person who kind of transmitted to the other. So I think that, uh, as far as I understand, has kind of complicated a lot of the assumptions and or challenged some of the assumptions that we've been making in, in these models. Is that right, um, Shamissa? Yeah, so exactly as, as Linway nicely described, we think about incubation period, usually from a clinical perspective, um, framed around when symptoms develop. So when um, transmission may occur prior to the onset of symptoms that are um, noticeable. So, you know, so symptoms that can be uh, easily detected that are not um, vague, for example. So when we have transmission prior to that, then we can get these periods of time where, as, just as you described, a person can become symptomatic, but have already passed on infection to someone else. And, you know, we, we, we have numbers like, yes, the average is about five, but there's a distribution around that for all of these estimates. So they can overlap and you can get these negative features. And um, the serial interval ends up being important because it's really a proxy for in um, classic transmission modeling or um, uh, epidemiological constructs we think of as generation time. The time from one person actually acquiring infection for the infection to be passed on to someone else and that other person on average acquiring that infection. And so the shorter that is, the faster an epidemic can take off. And so we usually use serial interval instead of generation time because it's hard to know and observe, I should say, exactly when those uh, infections actually occur. So kind of changing gears a, a tiny bit, um, what are some of the insights that we've, act, that we've actually already generated from some mathematical modeling of coronavirus, um, Dr. Mishra? So um, lots, I, I would say. Um, that there are things that we knew, like fundamental insights that were generated you know, prior to corona, like the novel coronavirus or, or COVID-19, um, and, and that were applied to understanding specifically fundamental features about uh, COVID-19, including um, the variability around the reproductive rate, um, dispersion around the reproductive rate based on sort of um, uh, uh, along those elements, important aspects such as the potential contribution of pre-symptomatic mm -hmm. transmission, combining both um, how the, the viral load during pre-symptomatic and symptomatic periods, as well as contact patterns, mm -hmm. and sort of translating that into possible onward transmission. Mm -hmm. um, so the contribution of onward transmission from sort of the pre-symptomatic period. Um, those elements have been um, have been quantified. Important insights, I think, that perhaps were known before, but were really brought to the forefront mm -hmm. um, in discussions, particularly around uh, the communication of it, this, the ideas of, the important, um, how much, uh, once you stop transmission and you get the reproductive rate below mm -hmm. one, the amount of time that it can still take for cases to actually go down because we're waiting for those incubation periods and, you know, and, and serial intervals to sort of play themselves out, mm -hmm. even though we've stopped a new acquisition 
at time X. So based on how many cases we have at that moment, mm -hmm. that we, we still have a lot of effort yeah. to, to, to go um, or time to go. Um, the importance of um, heterogeneity in, um, in physical distancing, mm -hmm. recognizing that even in an equation, when we say this is how much we need to reduce the contact mm -hmm. rates, that the application of that or the implementation of that will vary in the population. Mm. Um, and so we've learned more and more about um, how the saturation effect of herd immunity mm. can play a role in that, but also um, in thinking about certain constructs where like we may not be able to reduce contact rates. Mm. Where there's, a, there's a cap to that. Mm. And so what other interventions do we need to put into place? Mm. Um, and then finally, the, the importance of, yes, the, the pre-symptomatic transmission element, and therefore, what does that mean for the way in which we do, you know, con um, contact tracing, um, and as well as the re reducing the time from, you know, potential exposure mm -hmm. to being able to, um, uh, you know, provide the, uh, the, the facilities, the um, structure to be able to self-isolate mm -hmm. yeah. well. And safely, so I think we've learned uh, several of those elements um, beyond specifically for COVID itself. Okay, so uh, yeah, changing gears slightly again, um, maybe even coming back to uh, the the origins here. Um, could you could you walk us through, uh, Sharmista, what is a mathematical model of transmission? Uh, I know it's a huge question, and you know maybe you could just focus on a certain type that uh, you have been using for your research here. A mathematical model of transmission um, compared to, say, other types of mathematical models that are also used for forecasting, that are also used to um, for pr prediction, for example, statistical models or sometimes they're called phenomenological models. A mechanistic transmission model, essentially at the heart of it, has a feedback loop between a prevalent infection and an incident infection. So in essence, some people think of it as each case is a risk factor for another case. It's that interconnectedness that is happening either instantaneously and or within the system of the model. And it can lead to um, indirect effects that happen as a result. Um, and because of those interactions and contacts, we get these um, unobserved or uh, effects of things like herd immunity. Mm. And so a transmission model captures that in a way that's dynamic. So it captures that feedback loop and it mechanistically captures this effect of um, herd immunity or indirect benefits or indirect effects. Whereas other models that are um, statistical models or phenomenological models that can also be used for similar questions as mechanistic transmission mm. models, particularly around forecasting, do not. Mm. And as a result, a mechanistic transmission model, because it explicitly says this is what the causal pathway mm. must be, we, we have to have a bunch of prior knowledge on the biology or the natural history of the, the particular pathogen, on some understanding of how people come into contact with each other, mm. um, whether we stratify that or we kind of assume hey, we're all going to kind of you know, randomly mix mm. and, and bump into each other like Brownian motion, mm. right? So we have to a priori put those mechan like have thought through and put those mechanisms, which can be considered like conditions of the model, yeah. so that anything we do with the model is conditioned on the mechanism or the population level causal pathway that we have pre-specified mm. based on knowledge that we have from before.
and similarly, kind of, uh, oh, actually, Lin Wei, uh, did you want to add on to that at all? Yeah. Yeah, sure. I think I come from like a very uh, my scope of view when I work on the deterministic compartmental HIV transmission model and now the COVID deterministic COVID model transmission model. So to me, as Shamista mentioned, uh, it's a set of rules uh, predefined that requires expert knowledge. So you build in like what's the different states of the model. For example, you will have susceptibles, you will have like infected, and for infected, as we mentioned before, to capture the disease severity, then there will be subclinical components, and then individuals who are infectious, and then the clinical component, individuals who were diagnosed and moving to hospital. So try to visualize kind of a map of the movement of disease severity as well as the movement of the clinical treatment and outcome. That's kind of when we draw out the structure of the model. That's how I try to envision. And then it comes to the component Shamista mentioned is how different individuals in different components actually contact each other. So it says to like, without sufficient data, we assume the random mixing type of assumption in the model. And uh, so I found it that without uh, sufficient data, especially at the early or early phase of the outbreak, when we don't have observed the data on how the cases played out, uh, mathematical model, especially the mathematical infectious model that aim to forecast plays a huge role because without the data, uh, you can only rely on what we understand about the rule of transmission. So then it, it helps us to predict with certain uncertainty. And uh, versus statistical model, uh, some of the curve fitting methods, I think it really requires the observed data mm. curve. Then you're trying to create a model with the parameters and fit to the curve. And then you project into the future. So, and another component, I think some of the difference is uh, they are actually interrelated. Uh, as a graduate student before, like coming from uh, epi background, when we work a lot with statistical models such as, oh, we're trying to estimate the odds ratio of uh, certain factors in terms of the outcome. So how does that actually correlate with the mathematical model after I've been working on model parameterization? Actually, indeed, a lot of those uh, uh, estimates such as odds ratio, for example, what's the increased uh, case fatality among individuals of older age group, or age group? We can apply a logistic regression to estimate or Poisson regression to estimate that relative difference. And that relative difference then can be fit back into mathematical modeling in terms of model parameterization, trying to capture the heterogeneity in terms of the prognosis prognosis of the COVID virus. Mm. So that's kind of uh, my understanding of the model and how it relates back to some of the statistical modeling. Yeah, yeah. And just to, uh, for the audience, what parameterization actually might look like, um, we, different uh, variables that we may be interested in include things like the sizes of each of those risk groups, um, which may or may not be fixed over time. Uh, people might move between risk groups, and there's kind of a rate of movement that we might want to estimate. Um, and then, like you said, we may have exit uh, from a certain risk group. Um, and we 
We're not necessarily sure on the exact rate, but we're sure on the relative rate between those two groups, which is literally coming straight from epi, epi terms. Uh, and we could kind of fix that and allow like the overall rate to vary or something like that. So um, basically, most of the parameters tend to be rates, I think, um, that, we're, that we're estimating when we say parameterization. Anyways, um, you kind of already started to touch on this. Um, when you talked about uh, homo homogeneous mixing, um, so could you tell us some of the other kind of assumptions that uh, tend to get baked into uh, these models from Yeah, I mean, the probably the largest assumptions are, or the I should say, the conditions mm. um, under which we're, we're doing the modeling. So we have to answer questions a priori on, is this a population that is closed? Is this a closed system? Mm. Or do people kind of enter and exit the population? Um, assumptions, that in, and just you mentioned this on, do people move between risk groups? Mm. So do they come in and out of sort of demographic states? So not just aging, for example, but uh, um, for example, if we're thinking about uh, shelters for persons experiencing homelessness, you know, sort of are, there's um, contacts within the community, mm. and then so sort of maybe going into the shelters and just for the, the night versus, you know, contacts only within the, the shelter system. And usually all of these, always reflect back on who is contacting whom and so what are the potential ways in which transmission may occur so when we sort of these are the conditions that we have to lay out so um, the closed system the coming in and out of demographic states because the proportion of the population that is susceptible mm -hmm. really is that element of herd immunity mm -hmm. and sort of you know, the proportion that are susceptible, especially if there's turnover and, you know, new susceptible individuals entering into a high risk or higher vulnerability environment mm -hmm. when we haven't changed anything else, kind of continues to potentially be a little bit of like the fuel mm. uh, for the fire. So th that's another one. Um, and then lastly is, is exactly the, the mixing, the who comes, in, comes into contact with whom. Mm -hmm. Um, and then lastly, the typical things that happen with any study or epidemiology, which is what is the time frame? Mm -hmm of the analysis, you know, where are we now? Mm. Are we at a growing point in the epidemic? Are we kind of at a flat point? Mm. Has the epidemic not taken off yet? And so are we just estimating what might happen yeah. if there was introduction of an infection? So then th those are all other conditions under which to lay bare mm. um, the answers to our questions. Awesome, thank you. Um, Oh, briefly, since it's come up a couple of times, can you can you quickly define uh, deterministic versus uh, stochastic, uh, and and maybe uh, compartmental versus uh, individual based? <laughs> um, so uh, so um, uh, deterministic versus stochastic. So really, one just tells us a little bit about what are the average properties. Mm -hmm. So for thinking about these compartments or health states, on average. Mm -hmm you know, versus, hey, I'm going to look into like all the random chance that might happen. So even though I might have a bunch of average features, chance plays a role. Mm -hmm. And so we often think of them as like epidemic or outbreak realization. So, mm -hmm. you know, on average, we might see the same thing. Mm -hmm. But actually, what we'll see, we'll take into account a bunch of random chance mm -hmm. with respect to, for example, whether an infection occurs. Mm -hmm which is an average property in my deterministic model yeah. versus there's some chance element to it, even for the same rate yeah. for, uh, for the stochastic model. And then the other one you mentioned is compartment versus sort of individual based. And that's really about whether or not we sort of average folks out mm -hmm. so that we have health states um, that take a group of us together versus 
versus simulate out every single individual mm. and the attributes or properties around an individual. And it comes, there's a bit of a spectrum there mm. where we go from um, kind of averaging things out and subsuming a little bit of the heterogeneity all the way down to mm. simulating every single person, which doesn't mean simulating every single person to reproduce reality, mm. but rather the properties of reality that we observe. Yeah. Um, so even an individual-based model is still a simplification of actual reality. Yeah, yeah, because it's impossible to capture everything. Basically, that's... And it's not the, the question that we're trying to answer per se, mm. exactly. Um, okay, so if we imagine kind of two aspects coming into modeling, one of them being our assumptions, our understanding of the of the problem, and maybe certain equations that maybe we, we need parameters for, um, what are the data that help us actually build those models? And um, where, where do those come from? Maybe, Linway, you could start us off. Sure. Uh, so data and the mathematical model structure actually go side by side, and one informs the other mm -hmm. because like for example, when we think about different compartments, um, I'm talking about from like a compartmental model perspective as an example. And uh, if we were to have different compartments such as susceptible and uh, people in the subclinical state and uh, infected and those who are hospitalized or on ICU, then we do need to quantify the number of people in each state or the rate of movement. And uh, so that's one part. And uh, so it's it covers population uh, demographics, which can come from the census of data. For example, our model of GTA, we need a census of the population size and the population growth of the GTA population. Mm -hmm. And uh, in order to replicate the transmission dynamics, uh, we need the data such as epidemiology features. So as I mentioned earlier, we need literature review to get the information also what's the estimated serial interval mm. mean and the distribution, mm. as well as what's the duration of incubation period. Mm. So those are the data that speaks to the epidemiology of the virus. Mm. And then the other data comes to the clinical uh, features, um, percentage of cases that's been hospitalized mm. and the severity of the disease. And lastly, when we're pulling all the things into the model, we want to valid, validate or check whether the model produces the so-called reality. So which is some of the features, we also call it calibration targets, mm. uh, including, for example, what's the diagnosis rate uh, per capita, mm. uh, proportion diagnosis per capita, and what's the time series of the uh, number of deaths mm. among those who are diagnosed. So those are the type of data we are looking for. And uh, uh, for where the data is coming from, there are several rules. Mm. For example, the census data for the population demographics. And the key part will be the surveillance system. Mm. For example, in Ontario, it was called the IFE, the Integrated Public Health uh, Information System, mm. which captures all the confirmed cases and the probable cases in the province of Ontario. Mm. Uh, it's a personal level data, so we can get information such as what's the age, sex, and also uh, where individuals reside. Mm. So we know we can attribute the cases to different uh, regions and also including whether the case have been in contact with already diagnosed case. So it comes to the contact tracing elements in the data. And uh, in addition to that, we will have data such as the uh, health administ 
health administrative data in Canada, which includes, for example, the laboratory testing. Uh, in Ontario, it's called the OLAS, Ontario Laboratory Information System, which captures all the lab orders and the results, and of course, including the COVID test mm. and the results. Mm. As, uh, in addition to that, we have data such as ED visits, mm. so uh, ED triage data, which captures potential suspected cases of COVID, mm. which supplements the diagnosed cases. Mm. And uh, moving forward, uh, besides the ones that's been routinely collected, mm. we also have data collected specifically during the COVID pandemic. For example, the Ministry of Long-Term Care mm. has a long-term care home case checker, mm. which checks at the long-term care home facility level what's the aggregate number of cases mm. among long-term care home residents, what's the death, mm. as well as that among staff. Mm. And uh, so those are all the piece of data that's either been routinely collected or uh, we start collecting during the epidemic. Mm. And on top of all this uh, data, there are literature out there. Mm. And uh, I think that's critical uh, in two aspects. One is at the early phase of COVID outbreak, even though we don't have data for, let's say, Canada or Toronto, Ontario per se, mm. lots of modelers still putting out models for the forecasting, mm. which is heavily rely on what has been happened in other countries, such as China, uh, South Korea, Singapore, who had early waves of the out outbreak. And uh, so literature is another component. When we don't have the region-specific data, we have to generalize by learning what we've learned from other epidemics. I have to say, in reading the literature, I've been so impressed with the level of um, open source sharing of both code and preprints. Um, it, it seems the pace of this has been, I mean, it's hard to stay on top of, but it's been a really Herculean uh, success with all the uh, sharing and, and knowledge translation, yeah. Uh, Sharmis, anything to add to that? Um, and I, um, no, that, that was fantastic. And I think just two points. And the first is um, when in an, in an outbreak setting, data are evolving and, it's, and I think what we've learned is how uh, different this is than some of our um, HIV work, for example, mm -hmm. where infection is endemic and, you know, so there's a history of um, surveillance systems and, and data um, uh, um, systems, but uh, with, with COVID data are emerging mm -hmm. and as, as we learn, things are being, you know, adapted with respect to data coming in which also means that it's important to think about val validating the estimates mm. and or cross-checking the data themselves as well mm. and not just the model. So occasionally it's like doing a meta-analysis, like there are multiple sources of data. And what I hope came through from Linway's description is that as transmission models, we're usually not working with one data source. Yeah. We're usually working with multiple. So the, the data synthesis component, mm. including, for ex including often statistical modeling as that generate priors or relative risks that we then need to calibrate to, for example, are all a massive element of, of transmission modeling, particularly data-driven transmission modeling, when we move from um, sort of fundamental insights to intervention modeling and things like that. The second point and to, to what you raised, Jesse, is I too have been, I think we have all been impressed with the amount of like open um, data sharing, but also code sharing. So I think this reciprocity of um, of sharing of knowledge of tools um, and I think has been fantastic it has also raised I think the level of um, scientific rigor and discourse mm. around things like oh hey 
serial intervals are negative. What are ways we can address yeah. that? And then sharing those tools, which is, is something that you've done, yeah. Jesse. So I think that, um, uh, just putting in a plug Thank out you. there, and and, uh, and similarly, I think of uh, that the bias analysis. So Linway's done a lot of bias analyses, for example, for our GTA modeling, and sharing that way across the board and making that open access. So I think that element I've really um, felt as part of a wider community yeah. of data and modeling and and uh, um, and an interrogation of our work yeah. in a really positive way. I remember reading an article about some uh, code from Imperial College, I think. They said it wasn't pretty, but it was all correct, uh, one of the models that they had open source. So yeah, yeah, that's really important. And especially when we're working fast on something, if anything, this is a great way to put it out there and be like, hey, some, you know, someone check and, and additional, like a community of people sort of checking and, uh, and then looking at it. And, and it's the code, but also it's the decisions we've mm -hmm. made, right? So it's those assumptions and the conditions and the bias analyses of the data ahead of this that I think is also really important for us to be very transparent about. We had all sorts more questions before. At the end, we do want to say 15 minutes for, um, for questions from the audience. But we have about uh, 10 minutes or five minutes before that. So I'm just going to give a quick read here. Do you want to talk a little bit about um, some of the special considerations for data um, that have uh, been used to parameterize um, models of COVID-19 in GTA in Ontario? Um, kind of more specifically about uh, oh, uh, Linway? <laughs> We've uh, partially touched base on that uh, from what Shamis have been talking since, for example, uh, one thing I think it's recognizing the fast evolving of data. Every day we can see data changing, new fields come in, and also the patterns change given the ty different time points. So it's to adapting to the faster changing pace and work with what we have. And uh, second is, I think it's upfront, like, what is observable and what is not. So I think it brings back to the point you were trying to raise before is the incidence, the true incidence versus the observed diagnosed cases. Mm -hmm. So for example, other surveillance system could capture the diagnosed or detected cases. And what's out there not being captured and what's the challenging part is, so what's the actual population that's actually being infected with COVID-19? So this comes to, when we look at the data, we bring in what's the limitation in the data, then how do we address it? For example, in this aspect, in terms of how do we capture the part that's being not diagnosed? There are two potential ways. One is there are literature out there using, for example, study samples among those repetition flights mm. or cruise ship, where you had the opportunity actually to test everyone and document what's the proportion that actually have symptoms versus not, to have a sense of what's the ratio of diagnosis in certain population and in certain region. Mm. And second will be to capture what's the potential susceptible cases. So in addition to the uh, surveillance system ISIS, we also rely on, for example, at the ED data, trying to see at the ED triage or the ED visits, what's the public, uh, what's the size of visits that has susceptible uh, COVID symptoms to get a gauge of what's the part that's missing out there. So that's the second part. And uh, another part I would say is uh, closely related to the time dependency in a lot of, uh, for example, the intervention. Uh, for example, the testing patterns have been keep changing mm -hmm. given the testing guidelines. So being able to, in the model, to capture the different testing rate over time, 
in, uh, in response to the change in uh, the testing policy or guideline, it's very critical. Yeah. And uh, yeah. Because you could imagine that certain populations who are prioritized for testing when tests are limited are expected to have maybe higher prevalence, higher proportion of cases. And then over time, as we scale up our testing, uh, we're testing people who are less and less likely to maybe have, but at the same time, the epidemic may be growing. So yeah, it's, it's very complicated. Sharvista, uh, anything? I think uh, bringing home the point about how important it is to sort of look at the data um, almost uh, together, all together, sort of that descriptive epidemic appraisal mm -hmm starting to pull some quantitative elements out of that and then thinking about how our transmission model, whether we use that as a prior or calibration targets, really are combined so that, um, um, and again, just being really upfront in our, you know, what, what, what have we included as sort of the change in, in testing patterns and the reasons for mm. it? Because as you said, there's sort of the per capita rates and the positivity mm. rates will change according to the criteria that we use for, for testing or the surveillance um, point prevalence uh, stuff that we might have done, for example, in long-term care facilities and so yeah. forth. Okay, and last question. I know we do need to get some audience questions, but last questions. Um, Sharmis, I know a lot of your work, uh, especially around HIV, has, um, has uh, considered risk heterogeneity and the importance of that for understanding the dynamics of an epidemic. So can you uh, talk to um, how that's been influencing the uh, COVID-19 epidemic and the importance of it capturing it in the models. Um, thank you. And yes, I think that was part of when we first started some of the COVID work, it was really in response to some of the hospital needs. But um, where we went with this scientifically was drawing from our, our um, the fundamental principles that we use in HIV transmission modeling, which is really thinking about um, heterogeneity in acquisition. Mm -hmm. So my risk of acquiring heterogeneity and onward transmission. So what are the conditions, um, the environment I'm in that may lead to super spreading events um, or conditions uh, or an onward transmission. So not just a one time thing, but potentially onward transmission and then heterogeneity or variability and severity mm. um, that that might be reflective of age, comorbidities and, and others. So, um, but it's those first two elements and particularly that middle one the heterogeneity and onward transmission um, that I think is becoming more and more important. It's becoming evident in our data. So it's becoming an evident in how the epidemic has evolved, um, thinking about congregate settings, whether you know fixed or due to social constructs um, that limit physical distancing, for example, or limited with respect to infection com prevention control practices. Um, and supports a priori or a before the outbreak and so that that led to um, increased transmission so thinking about those elements and particularly um, those that level of heterogeneity with onward transmission um, and because that will influence not just forecasting down the road particularly when we get closer mm. to an r of mm. one you know we really fluctuate according to sort of these heterogeneities mm. um, but second is just from an intervention perspective, you know, sort of this one size shoe fits all mm. approach where we just reduce one element of our equation mm. and reduce contact rate could apply very differently across if there is actual heterogeneity, yeah. both because that baseline risks mm. might be different, but also because access to interventions and testing mm. and supports might also be different. Yeah. So heterogeneity and risk heterogeneity in access and or inequities really mm. could sort of continue to drive transmission, which we might miss out mm. on 
if we don't think about that in our transmission model. Um, that's not to say every transmission model has to have it, but if one of our questions is, you know, what role does heterogeneity play? What interventions? How do we distribute interventions? Mm. What do we need to think about for protecting um, vulnerable populations or facilitating um, support so that we reduce transmission across vulnerable populations and settings? Then we need to be thinking about that in our transmission model mechanistically. Mm. Can you give us some examples about um, maybe populations who are more vulnerable or um, other ways of other spaces that people might um, be uh, living in that are um, contributing to increased kind of risk? Yeah. yeah, so what we've learned so far, and, and again, interest, not interestingly, but you know, we, we sort of knew this from prior to COVID-19 as well. We knew this with other respiratory viruses that, uh, that had similar transmission dynamics. So um, I mean, facilities like long-term care facilities um, are, are, are more vulnerable spaces, um, both for residents um, potentially as well for staff. Um, and, and care workers. We know that um, work facilities, particularly where physical distancing is challenged, um, and essential workplaces have become settings that are more vulnerable, again, from a combination of challenges perhaps with physical distancing at the workplace, but also baseline infection control mm -hmm. supports. Um, prior to that, similar with our, our long-term care facilities, um, shelters, and um, uh, vulnerabilities of persons who experience uh, uh, homelessness. And for example, we saw in GTA that um, there was an increased risk, but then many facilities had a, a priori mm. already started putting in supports, knowing that this might be a vulnerable um, situation or setting. Um, so we're seeing that. And then also when we think of sort of um, uh, the outside of congregate settings and we think of community transmission, mm. it's really thinking about how they're linked with essential workplaces or congregate settings. And so some, what are some of the social determinants of health that limit physical distancing, for example, within households or multi-generational households or um, you know, older apartment buildings and physical design of structures. So um, there's heterogeneity across the board. That, and when we think about it mechanistically, it comes down to what are vulnerabilities with contact mm -hmm. rates that limit physical distancing? What are vulnerabilities with respect to access that play into to those elements? Awesome. Um, thanks so much. Yeah, that um, um, that kind of wraps up the questions that I had time for, uh, that I had planned. And now we'd like to go to some of the questions from the audience. So I'll just uh, give a quick read here. Um, so one of the questions is, um, you mentioned herd immunity. Can you expand on herd immunity as it relates to COVID-19? Uh, and what percentage of the population will need to be immune? Um, and are there some models that kind of predict when this will happen? So uh, a, a big question. So first, um, when we think about herd immunity, we're really thinking about um, how contacts may occur between somebody who could pass on the virus with others in a way in which the others are no longer susceptible. Mm. So that might be because they've already been infected and now um, are have a, a certain degree of protective immunity. Mm. It might be because they've been vaccinated. It might be because we actually essentially cohort or um, bubble ourselves a little mm. bit so that uh, we just reduce who I might come into contact with, for example. Mm. So it's really, what, what, if, what has happened to the proportion of the population that would otherwise be susceptible? Mm. And so um, by reducing that, 
even if I could pass on the virus to someone else, I may not just because of who I'm coming into contact yeah. with. Um, and so that's the pure element of sort of herd immunity. Mm -hmm. But of course, as you can imagine, there's a lot of other things that can can act as well with that. For example, things like, you know, wearing a mask and so forth. So, um, and then when we think about herd immunity with that concept, so it really comes from the vaccine literature, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so one thing I would um, think about uh, promoting is, uh, and it's come out in one or two papers now, is we think of herd immunity in terms of its language around vaccine, mm. but to perhaps think about this as shield immunity mm. to remove some of the connotations that come with herd um, as well. So it's, it's come out in the literature and it's kind of this nice idea of thinking about, you know, sort of how do we sort of shield um, a susceptible population, for example. Um, do we know what the actual estimate of that needs to yeah. be? And that will come down to, in, the, in whichever model estimates it, two questions one must, three questions one must ask themselves. One, is it a closed population in which susceptibles are no longer entering or they're actually entering the population? So is it a closed population or not? Second, the model that estimates it, ask ourselves, are we mixing all mm. homogeneously to get all at the same time? Or is there are there pockets mm. of higher, more vulnerability or pockets of risk, for example, or even ge whether it's geographies, whether it's physical spaces, congregate settings, for example, or our physical networks, okay? So that, and, and the third element is who's being removed from our population? So, um, you know, whether they're moving out or they're dying at a disproportionate rate, okay? So all of those elements contribute to the proportion of susceptible within one's um, physical network and so that's why the estimates of herd immunity that is required to control the outbreak will be different based on one, the underlying reproductive mm. rate um, in, in, in the population, which is all about population structure as well as contact rates and um, heterogeneities in those. Two is if the model captured all of those or if it just sort of assumed homogeneous right. mixing. And then the a third, I went backwards again, is that what happens to susceptibles as they enter in or not. So I can't give a, I can't give a number, but there are ranges across studies, and I would encourage us to think about the conditions under which those, those herd immunity estimates were, were generated. Okay, and, and a question here for you, uh, Lin Wei. Um, how, do, uh, how do we have, how do we make prior decisions or uh, leverage prior knowledge um, for an uh, infection like uh, SARS-CoV-2 um, which is so new. So how have we come up with some of those prior uh, distributions or, um, yeah, where, where do those types of assumptions are coming from? Yeah, I think I come uh, from a combination of uh, study. One is, I think, relying on the prior knowledge. It's like we have uh, other uh, virus that have similar structure, right? For example, I think that at very early on, people were closely trying to compare coronavirus to what happened like in terms of SARS and uh, trying to compare and estimate what's the R0 of SARS and uh, with data going in, the R0 of coronavirus. So that's one. And second is, I think, I think virologists may speak better like in terms of like how the virus uh, uh, features, biological features, and uh, 
uh, transmission uh, mechanism. And I think one thing that's uh, often a preset rule is, for example, in the type of uh, virus transmission model, the SIR type of model. So this is a prior knowledge. So we know the susceptible compartment, the infected compartment, and the recovered compartment. And uh, those are the prior knowledge. And uh, the second is, I think uh, it's as Shamista mentioned, it's an iterative process. So we start with something simple, and uh, uh, at the beginning of the uh, model fitting, we were literally calibrating to what has happened in Italy and uh, in Hong Kong, and trying to select our model fits using those constraints. And now, with the data collected locally, we will calibrate our model to the observed data in the Greater Toronto area. So I think those are the few aspects. Uh, anything to add to that, Dr. Mishra? Um, no, just that the prior knowledge, particularly a prior um, prior knowledge, whether we call it knowledge or actual mm -hmm. priors, you know, sort of like um, actual priors in the model with estimates um, at the when an emerging when an infection is emerging is very important. And there was a lot of we know a lot from how uh, other respiratory viruses are, are transmitted. So even when we don't know exactly how this will play out, so considerations of whether the E period, e period or the SE mm. part of this was important, um, how quickly we needed to know about pre-symptomatic transmission. Um, so, as, so some folks use sort of SARS as the example and others use influenza and said, we don't know mm. yet, but here are the, you know, the, the, the two, two extremes, for example. So I think that is a really important element and that means having the infrastructure set up mm. so that when something emerges, people are ready to work on this or already have been and, and, and can, can quickly adapt versus sort of scrambling to, so yeah. yeah. That's where the prior ex knowledge and work comes yeah. in. Awesome. We don't have a ton of time left, but maybe uh, one other question from the audience here. Um, with the global nature of the pandemic, um, have the, has there been a need for new modeling algorithms or uh, new methods uh, that scale in, in terms of that global scale? Um, I, I'm not sure if it's something you've necessarily worked on, but. Um, it's not something we've worked on specifically, but there. Um, there's definitely the sharing of tools and, and approaches and um, solutions to some of these challenges. Um, when we're thinking about scale, they're definitely, in terms of, is the question sort of moving from sort of doing local to international kind of global yeah. level modeling? Um, in many ways, I feel like it's been the other way mm -hmm. around. Sort of we've gone from more like international, national, provincial scope mm -hmm of questions to now starting to become more granular mm. at the local level. So I, I, I almost feel like it's gone that mm. way, um, driven to some extent by local, con like heterogeneity and local context. Mm. So I feel like that's how it's occurred from a question perspective, but that the similar models are being used at, at, at multiple levels. And then so last question, uh, since we are basically out of time at this, or like in a couple of minutes, um, so what's next for you? Uh, what, what do you see that to be the ongoing role of, uh, of modeling in, in the continued response, and epidemiology, sorry, um, in, in uh, continuing to address this response? Um, Lenway, do you want to start us off? Sure. Um, 
as we've been mentioning before, like the EPI is really the study of the determinants of health state. So I think during pandemic, we kind of learn it in a backwards uh, way. When data come in, we're trying to understand which subgroups are at higher risk and what has the social determinants, uh, the biological, demographic, economical determinants of health. And I think as epidemiologists, uh, it's a critical part of study. Uh, I think working on the current determinants of uh, COVID risk and outcome will actually inform us to actually enhance our surveillance system in a way that we can feed back the knowledge to how we design our surveillance system to start with, which are the field we should routinely collect or to incorporate so to be prepared for the future uh, modeling and uh, intervention and the prevention of other uh, diseases. Um, I think it's, uh, I, I think next steps for transmission modeling um, would be to build on exactly what Lin Wei said. Um, for us, it's to move forward with understanding the, con the causes and contributions of heterogeneity and, and risks at acquisition onward transmission severity um, and evaluating our interventions what worked, how did it work, where did it work, for whom did it work, and for whom did it not work, and sort of um, starting to uncover some of those uh, with the transmission modeling moving forward, and then um, incorporating that within the bigger picture. So we're sort of w just one part of the, you know, the, the elephant essentially, when we're trying to understand um, the causes and consequences of the COVID epidemic on our society. And so starting to figure out where our transmission modeling falls into the bigger picture, including some of the unintended consequences, or not the unintended, but perhaps the negative consequences of um, uh, the, the, um, the, the, uh, the, the control measures that we model mm -hmm. out that we don't measure perhaps in our, in our model per se. So starting to incorporate that with other groups that are working on that, for example. So um, I think that's where we're, we're headed next mm -hmm. in, in particular. Um, and, I w and, and more, yeah, open data, open code, yeah. open source code, sharing of knowledge, I think is where we're moving forward yeah. we talk as a community. Yeah. We talk a lot about paradigm shifts and I think um, hopefully that's one of the enduring ones uh, that comes from, from this, uh, unfortunately, yeah, okay. Um, thank you so much for joining us. I think we'll have to call it there for, for time, um, but we really appreciate you guys taking the time out of your super, super busy days these days, um, and, uh, and that'll wrap us up. Thank you so much. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you found this discussion informative. To kick off Season 5, the COVID Decoded series hosts sat down for a roundtable reflection on what we learned from the series and the pandemic at large. You can check it out in Episode 80, as well as the other COVID Decoded streams wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, keep it raw. Raw Talk Podcast is a student presentation of the Institute of Medical Science and the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the IMS, the Faculty of Medicine, or the University. To learn more about the show, visit our website, rawtalkpodcast.com, and stay up to date following us on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook, at Raw Talk Podcast. Support the show by using our affiliate link on our website when you shop on Amazon. Also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts, and rate us five stars. Until next time, keep it rough.